Welcome back to the Zombie Coder Podcast, where we believe less is more and worse is better. This is once again the lead undead software engineer, Andrew, coming at you from a small family homestead in the Midwest. This is episode 11 of the Zombie Coder, and the second episode in a series dedicated to explaining how Bitcoin and Git and anything really that uses a sort of blockchain concept might work. Now, that first episode, we covered the idea of hashes and hash functions. And in this episode, I'm going to clarify a few things that, well, I kind of hand-waved in that last episode. And specifically, I'm thinking of really the exclusive OR operator and the magic that it provides and the idea of randomness and random number generators or pseudo-random number generators. And these are both very critical topics to the basic operation of those algorithms I was mentioning in that last episode, specifically as far as hashes go and how hash operations might work. And when we talk about randomness, kind of some of the desired properties of a hash number and kind of a more formal definition for how we might be evaluating those. So let's start off with the idea of a random number generator, or as you might say, a pseudo-random number generator. There's an argument here to be made that there is no such thing as a random number or random event. I am not going to dive into that amount of philosophy, but I think we're going to have to just kind of accept the, the idea of randomness in the world and that that is possible. And so let's look at kind of the idea of objective randomness or what I'm going to call as objective randomness, something that we can at least maybe agree on uh, that wouldn't be able to be predicted by an outside uh, observer or somebody that didn't have really some very vast celestial sort of qualifiers uh, behind them. Now, one idea for that might be something like six-sided die. If you look at that and you throw it and you're not cheating the system somehow by either having weighted die or uh, holding it in a special way to make it come up with the same number, if it is a fair die toss, you're going to expect to see a pattern of uniform distribution between the numbers of 1 and 6. And kind of a weird quality of that is it is just as likely that you can have all 1s come up as any other sequence. And if you think about it, you know, if you see that all ones sequence come up, you're going to say that, oh, that die is probably loaded. But there's a valid probability for that. And there, well, there are valid tests we can do to kind of look for that if you're looking for something uh, that might indicate a lack of randomness or, or a highly statistically unlikely result. So that die coming up with, all ones 10 times in a row, you have a probability associated with that. And that probability has meaning. And so if you throw it another 10 times and you see the same ones come up, well, then you have a probability for that pattern as well. And indeed, everything as far as random number generation goes turns into this game of probability. So well, at least as far as uh, looking at the real world is concerned. Another good example of what we might call an objective random number generator would be looking at radioactive decay or, or the phenomena of radioactive decay. And there's actually services online you can go 
to get random numbers or get a set of random numbers that are being generated uh, using this sort of mechanism. Uh, there's a link I'll include in the show notes if you're curious to go try it out. Now, one of the more interesting properties of grabbing numbers using this sort of method is that it would be really good for perhaps a statistical simulation or some other scientific sort of endeavor, but not good from the idea of cryptography because somebody else would have potentially that same random data set. In fact, one of the more interesting things to me is some of the earlier computers actually had as a feature random number tables, uh, kind of sourcing back to uh, really how random numbers would have been done before the computing era, uh, potentially using either that sort of physical phenomena of throwing die or uh, a collection of random numbers that you might pull from uh, printed text. Let's look at interesting algorithmic ways of generating random numbers. And one of those might be to use a physical phenomena. And this gets back to something that you could actually say is a kind of objectively random. Um, again, that radioactive decay sort of example, you have a computer generating random numbers or random bits from that. But you could also do something like uh, what happened in the... Uh, 90s uh, by a couple people at SGI and create something to say watch a lava lamp. They built a random number generator by pointing a camera at a lava lamp and basically using that as a data source uh, with a degree of entropy that couldn't be easily predicted by an outside observer. In our case we are going to maybe want something a little bit more concrete and easy to deal with now you can look at hardware solutions. This will be tied into the operating system. As Linux is concerned, you can read a device. Sometimes these source from an entropy pool, and that entropy pool might be based off of like user events, interrupts, uh, any degree of just chaos that a computer can have uh, in injected into it, generally from outside sources or a degree of sensor input, like your keyboard or mouse being kind of the prime examples of that. What if you don't have that? Well, you get into the situation where you're in kind of like the early 90s era video games where you have things using random numbers, but they're very, very predictable. In fact, if you look at some old Nintendo games that used a pseudo random number generators you can see the same patterns appear over and over again and kind of take a guess at which game you are in so to speak so why are these patterns so predictable and why can we say that you have knowledge of a particular game you are within well the answer there turns into the concept of a random number seed or the initial number of a random sequence and since the earlier Nintendo and whatnot did not necessarily have a solid way to create a seed or have a solid entropy pool, there were only so many ways they could come up with these seeds, usually by using a timer or amount of time since the beginning of the console's startup. Now you might have noticed that when I was describing a random number generator seed, it kind of implied that the seed is the first number of a sequence. And that's an important thing to realize. In order to have a random number, we must think of it relative to a sequence of numbers or a series of events that are happening. 
So now that we've identified this concept of an initial random number and the idea of having a sequence, we can start to arrive at something that resembles a random number generator. So what do we know so far? Well, first, the random number generator needs to have a state or at least knowledge of the previous number in the sequence. We then need to perform some sort of operation on that state to come up with the next number in the sequence and then the one after that and so on. Now, how do we know that we actually, when creating this function, have a random number generator? Well, unfortunately, the definition kind of turns into this sort of you-know-it-when-you-see-it sort of thing. The more formalized definitions really basically state that given a seed value, you should be able to create a sequence where you cannot differentiate it from an objectively random function. So if we had our lava lamp random number generator or our radioactive decay random number generator or our rolled die random number generator, you should not be able to create a function to determine the difference between one of those generators and the random sequence that you were generating with your pseudo random number generator. Now the obvious problem with this is, well, what does that mean as far as uh, not being able to create that function? And the real truth of the matter is it's really a soft definition. Now there are libraries of tests that have been provided by various organizations, including the NIST, to determine the quality of a random number generator. So when you're looking at this, it's worth realizing that part of what you're doing is attempting to perform statistical tests to make sure that the random number generator is creating an output that doesn't have a regularly identifiable bias or pattern. Now, one sort of obvious fault with this whole approach is the concept of a seed or the fact that the pseudo random number generator will have an initial state. And we handle that by just simply defining it away. We say, we really, we're going to take the initial state or we're going to provide it some sort of initial state. And then after that point, we run these tests to see if the output appears to be random and uniform and really undifferentiable from an objective random function. Now, one of the more popular methods, and just frankly, it's effective and easy to use, is the linear congruential generator. And this is based off a very simple equation where you multiply the previous number, add a constant, and take a modulo. So a times x plus c mod n. And that is really a single line of C or Python or even JavaScript source code. In fact, I'm going to link into the show notes of this episode where you can see that exact line in the GNU C library. Uh, now, the GNU C library does have kind of a little bit more complexity to that if you look at the global state it tracks. But you will see as one of the fallback options as far as that library is concerned this exact uh, this exact logic in fact the multiplier happens to be one one zero three five one five two four five unsigned and the uh, additive element is one two three four five and we're going to take the uh, the lower 31 bits or modulo 2 to the 31st to find out what our final random number is. Again, I'll have a link in the show notes so you can actually see for yourself that I'm, I'm not indeed lying to you. And 
if you have some time, it's kind of a fun thing to do to just experiment a little with uh, these uh, numbers, these constants, uh, trying your own hand at creating an A, a C, and an N that creates a good random pattern. And one of the things you'll find relatively quickly is there are definitely bad combinations. Uh, you can create a repeating pattern of, say, a single number, or you can create something that looks like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Now, one of the interesting things as far as this generator goes, and really any generator, is that at some point you're going to have a cycle. And that cycle length actually becomes rather important. In fact, uh, you can look at your linear congruential generator and you can know that uh, it's going to have a cycle length of a certain size and, and that's actually provable. Again, I will leave that as a exercise. I did not want to get into the raw mathematics of it in uh, this particular podcast uh, just because I don't know that the format really lends itself to that. So we've kind of got a solid idea now for what randomness is, at least maybe not as solid as a good philosopher could come up with, but at least something that we can actually work and play with things as far as a random number generator goes. How does that relate back to hashes? Well, one thing to look at here is you're going to be using some of the same techniques as far as uh, seeding a hash function would be concerned as you would selecting those numbers in uh, your your pseudo random number generator function if you're using that LCG method or the linear congruential generator method that I just discussed. And really kind of also some of the same tests apply to the output that you would do to a pseudo random number generator. And as as kind of a big picture item as well, we're just covering this topic as to kind of cover the basis for all of the required elements as far as how uh, Bitcoin and Git and all that stuff work. Okay, so let's go back to hashes and try to find a good effect to watch for that would really help us differentiate a good cryptographic hash from one that wasn't. And one of the kind of fundamental ideas is this avalanche effect or the fact that a small change in your input should result in a big change in your output and specifically you're going to want to see for one bit of change in your input data to your hash you're going to want to see at least half of the bits change for your output data so small change in input should mean a big change in output and the reverse of that should also apply as well to an extent. So changing your hash function or, or your hash results by a single bit should mean a massive change in the output of, or, or excuse me, in the out, original input of your hash. So it goes both ways. Small change in input, big change in output. Small change in output should mean a big change in the input data. Now, going back to the hash function, so we know now that in order to get a good randomized result, we want to have a lot of bits flip. And what's important as well is when we're flipping those bits, we really do not want to exactly lose information. Like We want to be able to change a lot of stuff, but still keep the information around or 
you might look at it as obfuscating the information, right? And this leads us back to the XOR operator. Now, the XOR operator, if you start playing with it, as far as computer science goes, it is perhaps the most magical thing of any operator when you're dealing with the with integers and you're dealing with Boolean algebra, XOR is just really awesome. It's also, I would say, very underused or maybe not underused. It's not used often because in a lot of cases, we don't necessarily care about that result. But if you get creative as far as algorithms go, there's all sorts of use cases for it, especially if you can start looking at bit fields and bit manipulation. So why is the exclusive OR operator so special? Well, let's look at the general properties or mathematical uh, or algebraic properties of the operator. And the first one that is kind of uh, obvious or a gimme is the commutative uh, property. And so all the commutative property says is that A exclusive OR with B is the same as B exclusive OR with A. So we can reorder the elements of our exclusive OR. Now, this does hold for the uh, true for the AND operator and the OR operator as well. It's, it's a general, you know, kind of normal thing if you think about uh, addition, multiplication, um, your normal operators, it should hold true. Uh, obviously, it does not hold true for subtraction. Um, it also is associative. So A exclusive OR with B exclusive OR with C, where you group A and B as being exclusive OR together, is the same as A exclusive OR with, again, grouped B exclusive OR with C. So you can group them. So the combination of grouping and reordering is interesting. So now I can say that I can really take my A, B, C, and go on, D, E, F, wherever, how many elements I have, and I can write them and group them in any desired order that I want. Obviously very similar to addition and multiplication. So what is special here? Well, let's keep going. Uh, we also have, with the exclusive OR, the idea of identity. So A exclusive OR with 0 equals A. Uh, there is also, if you're looking for it, you can use all trues and end up with the bitwise inverse of A. So A, A exclusive OR with all bit set, or, or all true, or all ones, is going to equal A with all of the bits inverted. All right, so still nothing real spectacular if you're looking at that versus addition or multiplication. Uh, so where is the magic? And the magic, this special of the exclusive OR operator is the self-inverse. And that is quite simply that A exclusive OR with A equals zero or the identity. So if you take your equation and you just exclusive or with A, then you can cancel out your A's from your data set. Or, or to put it another way, let's say that I take A exclusive or with B. If I exclusive or with that with A, then I have A exclusive or B exclusive or A. I can rewrite that as B exclusive or A exclusive or A. And then that exclusive OR of A cancels out and leaves B. 
Now the magic of this is that B exclusive ward with A creates something of a toggle switch. I can toggle between A and B by just exclusive oaring with the alternate. So let's say that we call that element C. So A exclusive ord with B equals C, or C equals A exclusive ord with B. Now C exclusive ord with A gives me B, and C exclusive ord with B gives me A. And if you work out that little bit of algebra there and kind of write it down and see what happens, you'll get the idea of why. And it's a really interesting property if you start looking at it. In fact, that property will allow you to swap two variables uh, without using a temporary, which is honestly one of those fun interview questions that people like to ask and uh, see if you know a bit twiddling trivia. I I'm not a fan of that, but that is indeed one that I have seen done before and actually had done to me, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but yes, it is a it is a uh, old trick uh, to use the exclusive OR operator to switch to uh, non-equal variables. Then if they ask you, hey, how do you swap two integers without having a temporary? Just look at them and say, well, they can't be the same. So uh, yeah, I know that one. And uh, hopefully you can move on with your life and, well, probably reconsider the place you're interviewing at anyway if they'd ask you that. Okay, the cool thing about this, though, uh, this property, uh, this set of properties, is that Exclusive OR does an amazing job of maintaining information and avoiding the trap that when you start combining stuff, you lose or start canceling things out that you might want to keep. And so when you look at a hash algorithm, you will see in several of these multi-round algorithms performing a, a operation on your original data value and performing that same operation with perhaps uh, multiple different other uh, kind of options or putting it into multiple machines and then exclusive oring the results to kind of keep things uh, uh, independent and, or, or recombine things without necessarily canceling out information. So hopefully with that little bit of background, you can look at the implementation of the SHA-1 algorithm now um, and see really for yourself exactly what's going on. It is a surprisingly simple, I would say beautiful algorithm because when you take a look at it, you can see all of the parts and how they add up and create this kind of nice finished result. Now, there is a little bit more theory. Well, I say a little. There is a lot more theory into the constants and how they're selected. And if you look at F and V algorithm or really any of these algorithms, you can see um, some of the papers discuss how they arrived at uh, the numbers or values. In fact, uh, if you look at uh, the art of programming, you can get a good idea for how to select uh, numbers using that sort of technique as far as uh, the linear congruential uh, generator method goes. You, that's a kind of good test run to see how some of this theory applies and how to kind of graduate it up to the next level. It shouldn't be magic now is what I'm getting at. Maybe the selection of the constant seems like a little bit of a dark art. That's not a dark art you need to necessarily know, though, to kind of get a picture for 
the lack of magic on the machine side when you're actually feeding this data in and you should see really how the results are happening. So that will be it for this particular episode of the Zombie Coder. Hopefully you are still awake and ready to go now code your own pseudo-random number generator and or your own implementation of one of these hashing algorithms. Our next episode in Topics in CS will cover trees and the very special sort of tree that you can create given a good hash function. And at that point, if you want to, you'll be ready to go implement Bitcoin or Git. I'm slightly exaggerating, but really not by much. You should actually at that point have knowledge in how the basics of these algorithms work to the point that you can look at the source code and get a very solid understanding of what's going on. Until next time, this is the Zombie Coder. Out. Music by Audionautics. Check out just this podcast at textux.com or this podcast and others at Stitcher. Oh, no, 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 no.